I did it too. I'm recording. This is not like TV, only better. It's only fair to pay for quality first-run movies. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Hey now, you are listening to Screen Watching. It's the podcast that's been dubbed the most ambitious team up ever in the history of the medium. My name's Dan Barrett. I'm joined here, as always, by the Winter Soldier himself. It's Mr. Simon Foster. Good to be here, Dan. I hope you're well. I hope the listeners are well and been watching lots on screens around Australia and the world. It's a very busy week on Screen Watching, as always. Disney shook the foundations of the exhibition industry by announcing a whole lot of changes to their release schedule going forward. We'll be looking at those. We've got news on Keanu Reeves' new project. Um, SBS have greenlit a whole lot of episodes of a new series. We'll be checking out what that means for the public broadcaster. And we say farewell to one of the great Hollywood leading men of the 70s and 80s, um, and look back at his work over the years. Talking to Evgeny Ruman, the co-director and writer of Golden Voices, reviewing Godzilla vs. Kong and a bunch of other stuff. It is a very busy week once again on screen watching. Indeed. Now, Simon, you didn't mention George Siegel by name just then. No, I was, it was slow boil. It was just sort of, I want, I want people to think, who died this week? So it's... <laughs> So, well, because usually the answer in this podcast is who died this week. Well, usually Dan and Simon throughout the podcast. That's very but true. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Yes, it is George Siegel. We could dilly-dally all morning, but let's get into it. Let's talk about the news that was. The big story this week is probably the Disney shake-up. What's going well, on? Well, look, uh, from my point of view, it's uh, uh, as the film guy, it's a, a huge shake-up in terms of where some of Disney's big... Um, I guess you'd call them tentpole picks are going to be uh, positioned this year. Um, And some of them are going to be positioned on the Disney Plus channel. Now, uh, Black Widow, the the MCU uh, new film starring Scarlett Johansson and Florence Pugh, that is getting a theatrical, but concurrently will screen on the Disney Plus channel at premium rates, as will Cruella, which is getting a lot of buzz at the Emma Stone version. It kind of looks like a female version of the Joker. Um, It will also go to Disney Plus in line with its theatrical release. Um, And Pixar's Luca, which is the new big animated film, um, the follow-up for Soul, which has been a huge success for the Disney Plus channel, that's going exclusively to the small screen from the 18th of June. These are all US dates we're mentioning. The Australian dates are to be confirmed. But um, they're finding a lot of success with the animated stuff as a straight-to-Disney Plus uh, uh, endeavour, and uh, Luca is headed down the same path. So it is a very sort of um, uh, shot across the bow in terms of the exhibition industry. The theatre owners are sort of shrugging their shoulders. How are they going to recover from a year of COVID close downs to um, to accommodate Disney's sort of new love affair with its own online streaming platform? How are you reading all this? Oh, look, so there's definitely a balancing act that Disney needs to be able to strike here. So you've got all the movie theatres across the US. So... Obviously, when they're launching, when they're considering the release dates for these films, it's the US market that they're really particularly concerned about because that's where 50%-ish of their revenue is made. So they need to make sure that it's in line with where the bulk of the revenue is and then also making sure that it works, it syncs up with what's happening internationally as well. Mm. So at the moment, as we speak, and we're at like the end of March, you've got a number of states across the US, the big movie markets of New York and Los Angeles, New York's open up their cinemas. Los Angeles, well, California is in the phase of opening them up. So not everywhere across California has their theaters open, but in the next couple of weeks they will, and they certainly will be open by May. 
So all these theatres are looking around saying, hey, look, we need product because you've got the situation that we've had here in Australia where it's been relatively safe to go to the cinema. I do it on a weekly basis. Mm. Lots of people seem to be doing this. Not lots, but, you know, enough. But the thing is that there isn't really a whole lot of content to really drive people to the theatre. So they're going to open up in the US, and I've got the exact same problem there as here, where there's just not really the titles. But they had Black Widow on the horizon of this is going to be the big title we can really launch thing, like cinema with and get people back into the theaters. Yeah. But Disney are looking at that saying, well, that doesn't really work out for us because the reality is, yes, at the end of March, theaters are starting to open. Vaccinations are still rolling out. Young people who are basically the lion's share of the tickets being sold to big event films like a Marvel release, they're at the back of the queue for getting a vaccination. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'll be part of that cohort who will be at the back of the queue in Australia. I'm waiting till October. It's probably more a situation of like May, June for a lot of the younger people in the US who will be the audience for this. So what Disney have to do? And so it's not even the fact that you've got like that big bulk of people who are still yet to get vaccinated, but it's going to take some time post-vaccination for people to feel that they're ready to go out and do things like go to the movies. Like yeah. obviously some places, like you see video coming from like Florida where there's a whole bunch of teenagers hanging out on the beach. But, like, you need more than just, like, the very brave teenagers who look like they're high in number in a video. But reality is that there's not really a lot of people going out and doing that. But you just need people feeling comfortable to go back to the cinema. Disney looked at this and said, hey, look, May, people aren't going to be quite there in the bulk of people that we need. We need to push it back a couple of months to yeah. facilitate that. Yeah. So that's where that's happening. But even when it launches in July, you still got the situation where people won't necessarily be entirely ready to go back to the theatre either. So they've got that Disney Plus launch in order to catch those people. You raise a really interesting point as to whether the the um, blockbuster movie-going mentality of the general public will return when the blockbusters return. I've had a, a lot of discussions about this with my my fellow critics and movie industry types, and, and um, the the concept of all milling around in the George Street foyer or or going up and down those escalators in you know tightly packed together to see the new Tom Cruise or the new Marvel or whatever, um, it has become a very foreign concept and you know they they are lining up these films they're they're um I, I guess you could say hedging their bets a little bit on on uh films like black widow and cruella and the other marvel film shang chai and the legend of the ten rings that's been bumped to september 3 they're going to want to make sure that as you say the movie going mood the movie going experience has returned in full when they put these films out there um they've pushed and look that can only really start happening once one of these big films comes out yeah and like sort of um unsettles the earth a little bit and gets people sort of back in the mood for it so the first one back won't be as successful as the second one back and the third one back but it needs to start somewhere. They'll be watching very closely this week's Godzilla vs. Kong, which was tagged as a, a, a big blockbuster release when it was commissioned. Um, obviously, the upside of this for Disney is huge numbers of subscribers heading over to the Disney Plus platform. We mentioned last week that it had already topped the, the million-plus mark around the world, as I think the figure we mentioned. Um, so the winner in all of this, of course, is Disney and Marvel. Um, and I guess down the line, some of the, the smaller titles that Disney all but sort of largely inherited from 20th Century Fox when they took over there, films like Ryan Reynolds in Free Guy, um, uh, Kenneth Branagh's Death on the Nile remake, The Kingsman with Ray Fiennes, the prequel to the Kingsman movies. So there's, they've got plenty of product in tow, and they're going to support the theatre's with that heading sort of into the future but i don't know it's a volatile volatile time and in 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 amongst all this you've got um 
what's Paramount Plus going to do with their blockbusters coming up? Might they go down the same path and put some of their major titles to the to the streaming platform? Um, all the while you've got Netflix in the background as well. It is one of the most volatile landscapes in the in the motion picture industry right now. Now, if you look at the trade press and the various industry commentators and maybe even just like the tone of yourself and myself, we sort of look at this and we're a bit disappointed to see these things are pushing back and we're talking about the realities of what this means for Disney. Let's maybe flip the narrative a little bit and say, this is probably a win for public health and safety where it's probably actually good that there's not these things that are enticing people to come out in large numbers in a volume that maybe we're not quite ready for. Maybe we shouldn't be pushing these things too hard. Maybe we do need to relax it just a little bit. Maybe a little bit. There are a whole lot of cinema owners living in cardboard boxes under bridge after the last year. So they've done it very tough. So I know that uh, some of our friends in the exhibition game need to sell a whole lot of popcorn and chock top to make up for 2020. But fingers crossed, things will return to normal fairly soon. Now let's move on to talk about someone who's young, dumb and uh, full of stuff. Keanu Reeves. We're all a big fan of his work. We are a huge fan of Mr. Reeves' work, and he had a uh, he's branching out. He's a he's a, a renaissance man in terms of his creativity and what he's bringing to the game. What can you tell us about Berserker? Yeah, so Berserker, this has been one that I've been kind of had my radar for a little bit. So about we'll say like six months, maybe even a year ago now, there was the announcement that he had co-created a comic book. It's called Berserker, and that's spelled B-R-Z-R-K-R. Spell check no nightmare. Yeah, and look, SEO, like that's, I guess it works, but you have to know how to spell it. It's brutal. Anyway, so he created this comic book and the comic book, the premise of it is it's about an immortal warrior. He's involved in an 80,000 year fight throughout the ages. He's known as B. He's a half mortal, half God. He goes and kills a whole bunch of people. There's blood, there's violence. It's glorious. Great. So you've got, (laughs) it's exactly the sort of thing you and I are looking for. So you've got that and that's the premise for his comic book. The character of B looks like Keanu Reeves, like it is Keanu Reeves starring in this thing in a comic book. And you look at it going, okay, that's it's patently ridiculous, but I'll go with it. It's kind of fun. It's Keanu. But I looked at this thinking, like, surely he was developing this to be a movie or something, and it didn't quite work out, and so it's now a comic book. Oh, okay. Cut to this week. It's like two, three weeks after the book had come out. Uh, we've got Netflix who are like, hey, look, we're going to do the Berserker movie starring Keanu Reeves as the main guy. Also, we're doing an anime series with Keanu Reeves voicing the main guy. Wow. And the animated series will be working the same way that a lot of these spin-offs are now, which is that it'll tie very heavily into the movie and expand out the world for potentially future franchise opportunities. Can he do no wrong? Just when you think he's fading into obscurity, along comes the John Wick franchise. Then he does this that shows he's right at the cutting edge of of comics and Netflixes and anime. He's... um he. He has proven himself as he always claimed to be, well, as we always claimed him to be, Hollywood's coolest person. Look, I think if you look through his filmography, you can prove that Keanu can do wrong. (laughs) But at the same time, like, he's a fighter. Like, you know, every couple of years, like, you do think he's out for the counts and he's a forgotten entity. But then suddenly he'll be back and then he's at the top of the food chain again. Very cool, Like, he's genuinely... I can't think of that many people that have had a career like Keanu. Because Keanu should not have had this career. No. There's no way we should still be talking about Keanu by any means. It took a long time for for uh, audiences and 
the industry to to take Keanu seriously, and now he's a major player in this new media landscape, which is a term I've used far too often already today. So, yeah, um, good on you, Keanu. Huge fan. If you're out there listening, give us a call. We'll happily interview and help you promote all your stuff. Yeah, uh, there was some sad news during the week with the passing of George Siegel. Yeah, he was a leading man in the 70s and early 80s. Um, if you haven't seen some of his works and want to catch up on, on why it's such a sad loss, certainly check out A Touch of Class, in which he co-starred one of the great romantic comedies of the period, opposite Glenda Jackson. Um, the Hot Rock with, with Robert Redford. He made his debut um, many moons ago in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is still an extraordinarily potent and powerful film um, starring Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, directed by Mike Nichols. Um, the Owl and the Pussycat with Barbara Streisand, California Split, The Last Married Couple in America with Natalie Wood and Fun with Dick and Jane opposite Jane Fonda. So you can see just by by reading those out that he's had a he had the, the, the pick of the leading ladies of the of the period and, and, and they of him. Um, he was always very generous with his co stars on the screen and had great comic timing. Um, as the sort of 80s flowed into the 90s, he became more a, a, a strong support player in films like The Cable Guy and The Mirror Has Two Faces, um, passing away at 87 on Tuesday. He certainly found some some mature age fame on the small screen, right, Dan? Uh, that's right. So he's probably best remembered these days for being a cast member in Just Shoot Me. Mm. So while he's definitely had an extensive filmography, I think that's the title that everyone sort of immediately leapt to when the announcement of his passing had uh, come out yesterday. Yeah. Uh, also, The Goldbergs, which is a sitcom that's still on the air, he was playing the grandfather character in that and you know being a prominent figure within that show. Um, thing about his film work, though, uh, I was reading the New York Times, and just as I was... The New York Times had a very extensive uh, obit for him sure. and was going through some of those sort of key roles. It seemed that throughout the 70s, he was involved in just a lot of movies about infidelity. And yes. I was thinking, is this necessarily something that he was specifically looking for, or was that just the 70s? I think that was definitely the sign of the times. He became... Uh, of anyone who's seen his leading man roles knows that he's a very charming, very likeable, kind of goofy, um, but but absolutely engaging leading man. And they were able to, and Hollywood was able to look at the, the, the sexual politics of the time and um, the, the changing social mores of the time uh, through this sort of very likable leading man and, and, and have these sort of... Um, bring these issues and bring these contemporary themes to their comedies um, while making it very palatable to the, the movie-going public. The success he had with A Touch of Class and The Owl and the Pussycat, um, as well as a lot of very good dramatic roles. His, his war movie King Rat was a terrific film. He was in a great film um, called Where's Popper? Uh, so, look, he was he was a, 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 just one of the most charming and likeable uh, screen presences um, and by all accounts, exactly the same off-screen as well. Hollywood has really come out and um, uh, sort of mourned his loss because, like you say, he was working right up till till day the last day of his life. He was um, he was working on the Goldbergs and um, doing a great job of it as well. So, uh, R.I.P. George Siegel. Thank you for the good times. Yeah, he seemed like one of the good guys. Yeah, he really did. Also passing this week is Jessica Walter. She died in her sleep this morning, aged eighty. Walter's best known for playing the role of the iconic Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development, as well as appearing in the animated sitcom Archer. She's had a very good 20 years where all of us have been very aware of Jessica Walter. But look, Jessica Walter, she's had a lifelong career in television. 
She started out as a 10-year-old. She had a bit of a gap. And then from the early 20s onwards, uh, so starting in like 1961, I think was her first sort of grown-up adult role, she's been consistently working. And she's just been one of these actors who's just in show after show, year after year. Some of the titles she's been in, Naked City, Route 66, The Fugitive, Flipper, Mission Impossible, Columbo, Ironside, The Love Boat, the FBI, and look, in the FBI, she made six different appearances in that show over the years, each in different roles. Love American Style, Mannix, Barnaby Jones, Wonder Woman, Hawaii Five-O, Joni Loves Charchi, Murder, She Wrote, Coach, One Life to Live, 90210, At Home is Amy Sedaris. Look, these are big, iconic programs, and she was a presence through all of it. Also, something I only really just found out this morning was she was the voice of Fran Sinclair in the animated, uh, well, the animatic puppet show Dinosaurs which is certainly a show that I grew up watching a fair bit as a youngster. So look, Jessica Walzer has been a fixture in all of our TV viewing lives, and it's incredibly sad to have to note her passing. Don't you judge me. You're the selfish one. You're the one who charged his own brother for a Bluth frozen banana. I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars? You've never actually set foot in a supermarket, have you? I don't have time for this. Finally, let's wrap up with some good news for Australian TV, where SBS, a place where I used to work for Disclosure, uh, they've announced their biggest commission uh, to date, which is 200 episodes of a cooking program. Wow. It is The Cook-Up with Adam Liao. So basically, this is Adam Liao, who will be cooking food every night with two guests. Uh, so a range of celebrities from the SBS stable and beyond. Mm. And so they'll be cooking up food, having a chat about the world, and... What I kind of like about the premise of this is that it's very much about teaching the guests how to cook things themselves and the encouragement of the audience to actually cook along with them as well. So all the recipe is going to be provided and it's going to be tried to be made as easy as possible for the audience, regardless of skills, to be able to you know, keep up. Terrific screen presence is Adam Lau. Um, he is a man that uh, I think is a absolutely worth every cent being invested in by by sbs um 200 episodes a cooking show every night of the week is it like prime time what is it seven o'clock what's it taking on all the it's going to be on the sbs food channel so that's going to be at 7 p.m uh-huh. every night so monday through friday i believe wow okay great good luck thank you sbs um making us all fat with the good food of adam lau and uh, looking forward to to seeing as that rolls out and i'd be remiss if i did not give a shout out to my former colleague Farah Selyu, who will be starring in the show. Every episode, there will be a segment where they throw to her to talk about the current trends in food. Now, I'm a huge fan of Farah, if only because she helped me out many times in working my way through Drupal, the CMS that the SBS website's built on. She's an absolute gun at that. She knows more than anybody. And also, look, quietly, every so often, because she's the SBS food person, you'd expect she knows what she's doing in the kitchen. And she delivered week in, week out. She would regularly bring in all sorts of desserts that oh, she's been cooking. Oh, yum. She, she's a dessert queen. Like, she knows what she's doing there. And some of the most delicious things I've ever put in my mouth have been courtesy of Farah. So, <laughs> look, I think that she's going to be great on screen. She's just like one of these lovely people who just has this great sort of presence about her. It's going to translate beautifully to TV, and I'm stoked for her because, you know, she's just one of these great people. That's good to hear. She sounds like she deserves every success coming her way with The Cook-Up. We've always said that everyone's entitled to our opinions, so let's have a look at reviews for this week. First up, uh, one of the most highly anticipated Disney Plus series um, to debut in, in 2021. It's called The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That show represents a lot of things to a lot of people. Symbols 
are nothing without the women and men that give them meaning. We need someone to inspire us again. People listening to this, it's been a week now since the first episode aired. Unfortunately, we didn't get screeners, so it's kind of just awkward. We're one episode in, yeah. You'll hear our review, then you'll be ready to watch episode two, like, you know, three minutes after. Because mm. I'm sure you desperately need to listen to this podcast before you fire up the new Marvel show. <laughs> but anyway, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. The promise of Marvel TV series is to bring the big screen spectacle of the big screen to your home lounge room. On the schedule are a series of TV shows that are taking the supporting characters from the movies and giving them their own adventures. This show, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, takes Captain America's two sidekicks and teams them up. It's not a smooth partnership, with both already exhibiting a large amount of antipathy towards one another. This show is a buddy cop movie, like Bad Boys and Lethal Weapon, but set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If that logline is of interest to you, you'll eat us up. For everyone else, your mileage will vary. Now, I love the idea of that, and the show didn't disappoint. The show opens up with a genuinely exciting action sequence with Falcon sent by the government to rescue a soldier who fell victim to some plane hijackers. It would have looked great on a big screen, but director Carrie Scoglin, she's done a great job with this, and I had my poles racing from the couch. And that's a more impressive feat than it seems as well, because generally most action sequences, they play well at the movies, but often fail to translate to the lounge room. On the small screen, they just look really fake, but this though, chef's kiss. <laughs> a couple of other... Sorry, I've probably done a chef's kiss, couldn't I? Yeah, you could. Now, a couple of smaller action pieces are also on display in the episode, but the rest of it's firmly about establishing who these men are and their journey so far. I should note that unlike Bad Boys and Lethal Weapon, we're 40 minutes into this now, and we still haven't actually seen them on screen together, but the promise is that that's coming. But we do have Falcon, a.k.a. Sam Wilson. He's struggling to get a bank loan to keep the family boating business literally afloat, He's helped save the galaxy, but the local bank still won't loan him any money. Meanwhile, you've got Bucky Barnes, who's adjusting to modern life after almost a century working as the Winter Soldier, a trained killer brought in and out of a freezer to perform some particularly nasty assassinations, but now he's hanging out with old army vets and struggling with dating apps. Now, for some viewers, I suspect that the character development probably felt sluggish, but I loved it for two reasons. It fulfills the promise of what the show is. It's a buddy cop drama stretched out over six 40-minute installments. This place that almost double the length of a single Captain America movie, and it'll give the characters more exciting set pieces, but it also means that we'll be able to spend some more time with them and the characters to actually see who they are. And with this, it actually feels like Marvel are doing something experimental within the confines of what seems to be a traditional formula. It's a six-episode series, which means it'll adhere to a similar three to four-act structure that we see in movies. But think about your favorite buddy cop films. They've always got one or two scenes with the cops that are bonding despite their differences and they're always the best scenes in a movie. Whether it's Martin and Riggs sitting in Martin's driveway like on his boat or it's perhaps in Utah drinking Kroners late at night while watching surveillance videos, these are the memorable moments that live with a viewer. What Falcon and Winter Soldier asks is, what if a buddy cop movie but with the potential for more buddy? Now, I also grew up reading comics in the 90s and back then, comics reflected real-world economic anxieties. I remember long arcs with Jimmy Olsen unemployed and looking for a new gig, industrial action at the Daily Planet, and Flash having to couch surf as an unemployed, unskilled superhero. An extended storyline of Sam Wilson being knocked back for bank loans is very familiar territory for superhero stories as far as I'm concerned. It makes the characters relatable, which makes the action sequences even more fantastic. And that action in the show, it's great. I think Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan are very likable leads in the show. I'm very much in for more. 
And I have to say, how great are Fridays? I get to spend my mornings editing this fucking podcast before work, but then at night I get to watch this and I say, yes, more please. Ah, there goes the there goes the uh, rating on iTunes. God, that's that's going to come up well. Uh, look, I'm going to weigh in a little bit on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, um, not to that extent. Which, in all fairness, was as much I, a preview. Oh, I talked. Was was as much a preview as a review. We haven't seen a lot of that yet in the the first episode of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I hope it becomes the buddy cop kind of uh, f- show that that, that uh, you're claiming it will be, I found it a, a little bit flaccid. I found it a little bit um, namby-pamby in serious critic talk. Um, I like Anthony Mackie, and I certainly like Sebastian Stan's scenes with the um, therapist in the opening session. I thought they had a, a humour to them and um, showed a dark side to him, which, were, which was really interesting. Um, but in terms of a first episode, and maybe it's unfair to compare them, but coming in the same week as uh, Zack Snyder's um, Justice League, this absolutely paled in comparison. Um, I barely, and you're absolutely right about the opening action sequence, it is terrific, but the um, the rest of the, the opening episode just settled into a fairly um, pedestrian um, series of character-defining moments. I'm with it because I like the two actors and I like the two characters, um, but I thought it was a, a soft start for the for the new MCU series. Yeah, see, it was funny for me because I really didn't care that much for the Zack Snyder's Justice League, whereas you were really into that. Mm-hmm. And I think we're really just approaching the genre from two different perspectives. Yeah. And I think the audience is going to be split in a very similar way where I think there'll definitely be a lot of viewers who prefer the more iconic stance of a lot of the... Uh, more, um, I guess, highfalutin uh, Justice League sort of approach to storytelling, where I actually prefer the grounded approach to storytelling that you're seeing from this show. Well, see, I think this is a far less interesting or exciting prospect than WandaVision was. I thought they went to far more interesting places with their first MCU series than they did with this one. This feels... In fact, you mentioned last week it was 40-odd years since Greatest American Hero plopped onto American television. I think Falcon and the Winter Soldier so far has exhibited as much to do with that kind of uh, paradigm, that kind of template, than anything um, than anything too groundbreaking. But we'll see, once again, we'll see going forward. There's a lot more to come in the, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier series. The WandaVision comparison is kind of interesting because I found that WandaVision, the first couple of episodes, I thought were just incredibly bold and very exciting TV. Mm -hmm. By the end of the season, I was definitely enjoying it a heck of a lot less than I had been at the beginning as it settled into more of a very traditional sort of Marvel style of storytelling. This is very traditional Marvel from the outset. But where I find this exciting is the promise of this effectively is a Marvel movie but stretched out over this additional time to build in some of these more sort of interesting character moments throughout it. And if the show can actually live up to the promise of that, I think we have something sort of fairly unique and interesting in a way that I think that a lot of the Marvel stuff kind of leaves me a little bit cold because you don't have enough of this actual character work taking place in amongst all the big sort of fantastical special effects moments. All right, let's get a bit more down and serious. Uh, At the movies this week, Godzilla versus Kong. We need Kong. The world needs him to stop what's coming. And this child, she's the only one he'll communicate with. Essentially, if you're worried about who's going to be portrayed as the villain in this one, the big lizard or the big ape, don't get too concerned about that. Don't forget that there is man, his greed, and corporate malfeasance 
in this world as well as the two giant uh, titans um and uh, that certainly comes to the fore by the end of the film um in a film with two huge leading men uh the real star is a young actress called kaylee hottle she plays gia who has a um a bond with the great ape um that gives this film all its heart and soul um the rest of the cast and it's a big cast millie bobby brown from stranger things she returns alexander skarsgård uh rebecca hall there on the uh the, the godzilla uh, on the kong side of things um then you have damien Bashir, young julian dennison for hunt for the wilbur Pe- hunt for the wilder people um a solid cast a lot of australian talent in this this was all shot up in queensland or big chunks of it shot on the queensland coast um it all boils down to do you believe the special effects that pit a giant lizard against a giant ape in this you absolutely do adam wingard directed it to date he's done a bunch of uh smart fairly small horror thrillers a great movie called your next a film called the guest he did the blair witch remake a few years back this is his first really big special effects blockbuster and he finds that great balance between creating believable characters um, that are entirely CGI, um, uh, while also you know making the the, the, the human characters uh, more than just excess baggage in in a film like this. One thing we should point out: it is a total fantasy. No mention is made of the millions of people that are no doubt killed when the two giants uh, start ripping apart Hong Kong. But that's never been a, a huge concern of the Godzilla or King Kong movies. Um, mankind is sort of collateral damage, as it were. So I, 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 it's a big, it's a very loud movie. Boy, um, if you can see this on a big screen with the sound turned right up, that's definitely the way to see it. Um, is it as about as good as a Godzilla versus Kong movie is going to be? I'm going to say, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, now, before you gave your review for it, and unfortunately I missed out on a preview for it the other night, which I'm very annoyed about, but I thought it was going to be a custody story, kind of like Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> really? But... You think they're in court? They're up in the up in the witness box fighting with each other, Meryl Streep style? No, this is, a, oh, boy, that would have been good. She could do it too. She could play Godzilla, I reckon. She can do anything. <laughs> I love Meryl really Streep. Yeah. Now, I have to say, I was really disappointed with Godzilla King of the Monsters when that came out two years ago. Mm. And I've been very uh, hesitant, I guess, to be too enthused about this one as the follow-up to that film. Yeah, well, this one doesn't improve too much on that movie's just lame brain characterizations. The humans in that film and the dialogue was about as dumb as it gets. This one's better, still not putting too much emphasis on... Um, smart words coming out of smart mouths poor Kyle Chandler who I'm a big fan of um, he's really stiffed in terms of some of the, the um, stuff he's got to say and their attempts to lighten the also, mood Kyle Chandler second Kong film for Kyle Chandler in that he was in the Peter Jackson King Kong as well. Was he really? Okay. Um, yeah. This movie relies on a, an actor named Brian Tyree Henry to, to sort of bring some comic relief and unfortunately he's terrible. He's sort of um, uh, plays this a podcaster who finds himself walking through tunnels with Millie Bobby Brown and Julian Dennison and cracking wise and it just dragged the film down terribly every time he was on screen but in every other regard I gotta say that I thought Godzilla versus Kong was like I say about as good as a big lizard versus big monkey movie is gonna get. I uh, really disappointed to hear that uh, Brian Tyree Henry didn't really deliver in this because he's definitely one of the standouts in the show Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. Which is what he's probably best known for. Yep. Yeah. No. Okay, so the next one we're going to move on to is a little show called A Teacher. Delete that video. You are a really good man. Never felt this way before. It's new. 
you smell in the morning? I've never given myself permission to feel this way. See you tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> Over the years, there's been a number of high-profile real-world stories about female teachers being busted for carrying on affairs with teenage boy students. As a former teenage boy myself, every time I hear one of these stories, there's a part of me, and there's a part of me I'm not proud of, that thinks the story is just a little bit hot. But it's also sexual exploitation of a minor that can do serious harm to them psychologically as they grow up. Now, these stories get attention because they do exist in this uncomfortable middle ground between sexual fantasy and the horrific act of abuse from people we place in positions of trust. And that's where the new TV series, A Teacher, positions itself. New English teacher Claire Wilson, played by the cutest of button, Kate Mara, she's in a strained marriage with her husband, played by Aussie actor Ashley Zuckerman. They both feel something is missing from their lives as they try to conceive a child. She fills that void with stealing makeup from the local variety store while he's spying musical equipment to start a band in his mid-30s. Now, ready to fill in that void in her life, and please leave the poor taste joke at the door on that one, it's high school student Eric Walter, played by Nick Robinson from Love, Simon and the Kings of Summer. Now, this is a relationship they know they shouldn't be in, but it's clear that neither are fighting it all that much. A teacher is written and directed by Hannah Fidel, who is the writer-director of the 2013 film A Teacher. The series takes a lot of elements from that film, but evolves the story to focus more on the repercussions of the affair as it impacts both of their lives over a 10-year period. This series is an interesting intellectual exercise. It challenges the audience to not only sympathise with Claire as she embarks on a relationship with a minor, but also challenges them not to bring their own sexual curiosity to the series as well. At no point does the show advocate for this relationship as being anywhere near acceptable, but through the casting of Mara, and through its warm and inviting cinematography, Fidel is inviting the audience to be complicit in the act before taking a broader look at the damage it causes. This is uncomfortable, but highly compelling television. Uh, spot on, Dan Barrett. I've got to say that I, 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 mean, I find her a, a terrifically compelling actress, young Kate Mara. Um, that, I guess, is a holdover from the first season of House of Cards, where she was terrific uh, as the journalist uh, breaking the news. Um, and in the, in a teacher, she conveys a real sort of darkness of spirit, a real sort of um, uh, need for excitement in her life, need for change in her life that unfortunately manifests in the way of this young student. Uh, uh, what was the actor's name? He's terrific in this as well. Uh, the actor is Nick Robinson. Yeah, he was great in Love, Simon, and he is he's fantastic. Good young actor. And they are a terrific couple together when perhaps they shouldn't be, which is, I think, the the, the point you're trying to make there and make very well. It's uh, It, it does uh, entirely entice you into their story um, and manages to, certainly in the first few episodes, just shunt aside the, the moral dilemma that uh, she faces as a teacher, the bad choices she makes. Um and I guess in defining the attraction they have for each other uh, makes for this a really compelling uh, bit of drama. A lot of scenes of just them talking together, the, the, the characterizations and the character defining moments in this one are really well handled. Um, I'm hooked. Uh, be warned, it has some fairly sort of full-on moments of adult pleasuring, for want of a better phrase. Um so it's uh, it's definitely not one to sit Nana down in front of, but um, for good 
sort of mature uh, entertainment, um, it's going to be hard-pressed to find much better on the small screen this week. That's it. And I do think that there's going to be some viewers who will come to this with their own baggage that they bring sure. into it. Because the show is inviting people to bring their own expectations and belief and life experience and sexual interests and, you know, that whole hot pot of baggage that one brings to a program, particularly a story like this. There'll be some people where this feels a little bit too real and maybe touches upon issues that they've experienced themselves. And I think those people will quite possibly reject this program. For me, someone who's led a fairly sort of sheltered sort of life away from this, I found it to be a very sort of interesting prospect, but I can imagine that other people may sort of have some issues with it. Okay, let's go to my next review. It's called The Last Vermeer. It stars Guy Pearce. Everything in here was stolen and they put me in charge of finding out who took it and who sold it to the Nazis. This was just found in Goering's hidden collection. It's a familiar. So this is based on a novel based, that is based on a true story of a man named Han van Meergeren. Now, he's a Dutch artist and an art dealer um, who, at the end of World War II, was charged with collaborating with the Nazis after selling them a Vermeer masterpiece. Um, not just selling any Nazi, but selling to Hermann Goering, one of the most powerful of the, of the, of the Nazi party. Um, uh, Klaes Bung plays a prosecutor who is after Van Meegeren, but starts to believe that maybe he was also um, uh, twisting the truth and uh, lying to the Nazis as much as he was lying to his own people. Um, Guy Pierce, Guy Pierce brings the eyebrows and brings the big hair in this film. He really goes all out with a performance that borders a little bit on the, the comical at times. Um, Look, I wanted to like this film a whole lot more than I did. It is so dull. It is a film that's a kind of about a detective story. They're trying to pin um, uh, collaborating with the Nazis on Mirgeren, but there's a lot of time spent um, arguing about elements of art, about determining whether the, the, the paint used or the texture is, is classic Vermeer. Um, that in and of itself can be very interesting and should be very interesting, um, but when this movie settles into court case mode, and then a few twists are thrown in in the last few minutes of the film. By that stage, I was a little bit asleep. i got to admit, I closed my eyes at one point and just listened to the dialogue, and I thought this would have worked just as well as a radio play as much as a movie. So um, it's an earnest film, um, not badly made, just a little dull. Uh, that's probably saved me a couple of dollars because I thought that was my Saturday morning movie, but I think instead I'm going to pay my money to actually go and see the Godzilla vs. Yeah, good choice, good choice. If they could mix them up, if they could have Godzilla selling paintings to the Nazis and Kong investigating him, now we're talking movies. What about a teacher, but with Kong and Godzilla? Oh, yeah, I'm not going to go there at all. That would be a bad film to watch. Uh, finally, as part of our review segment, we have a new TV show called Invincible. Get up. I'm actually getting used to this a little. That's not good. You need to be better. After everything he's done, how can I live up to all that? You need to decide what kind of hero you want to be. Just when you're feeling all superheroed mm. out, along comes this new animated series, Invincible. If the idea of yet another superhero show isn't what you're looking for right now, and believe you me, after talking about superhero shows for the last three to four weeks now, I'm definitely feeling that a little bit. Uh, there's probably nothing about this show that's going to change your mind. But I do caution people about being too casual about this show. It's easy to dismiss as a superhero cartoon, but the show is actually incredibly adult, both in terms of its action sequences as well as its approach to character. At first glance, the animation style seems like a generic superhero show from the 90s, 
And that's where the show is playing a bit of a sleight of hand card trick with the viewer. Everything about this first episode, from how it looks through to the by the numbers plot, makes it seem like a bit of a banal waste of your time. It's a show that you've seen before, but the show is actually being quietly subversive. It's not quite in your face as much as shows like Amazon's superhero show The Boys, but it comes from a very similar place. What do superheroes look like if they're reset in a real world? What are the issues of morality that arise? And what's the psychological trauma of getting involved in this world? The plot of the show has the hero Invincible as an older teenager named Mark Grayson. His family secret is that his father is the world's greatest superhero, a Superman analogue type character called Omni-Man. Now, unlike his father, who heralds from another planet, Mark doesn't yet have powers. His father had expected that Mark's abilities would kick in at puberty, but he's nearing graduation at school, and it still hasn't happened for him. But this is a pilot episode about a teenage superhero, so lo and behold, by the end of the first episode, his powers do kick in, and the show then becomes a father-son adventure show, with the teenager learning about how his powers work, where to find the best tailor to design a costume, and how to stand up to the school bully. Now, all of that sounds like pretty standard superhero fare, and in a sense it is. But the secret source of the show is how, the, how human the show is in regards to its relationships. In the opening scene of the show, we see an action sequence with the Guardians of the Globe, which is the show's version of the Justice League, in a very full-on action sequence, which is highly thrilling, and that they are saving the White House from some known villains. But before we see that, we see an extended conversation between two Secret Service agents discussing one of the guy's stepson who had a difficult life prior and he's had issues with a wayward biological father, and now he's got pride with the way that he's seeing his stepson getting his life back together. We've got that. We also see later in the episode Mark being taught how to fly properly by his father, Omni-Man, and the scene plays out like a father teaching his son to ride a bike. It's really nicely crafted and really quite sweet. The voice cast for it is fantastic. Stephen Ewan plays the title character, J.K. Simmons is playing his father, and Sandra O's there as his mum. It's got a main cast that includes Zazie Beetz, Gillian Jacobs, Walton Goggins, Andrew Runnels, and it's got guest stars including Seth Rogen, Jason Manzoukas, Mark Hamill, Mahershala Ali, John Hamm, Clancy Brown, Mae Whitman, and a slew more. Maybe my favourite guest cast member is Reginald Val Johnson, playing Principal Winslow in a nice hat tip to Family Matters. In the final minutes of the episode, the Guardians of the Globe are called to their headquarters by a mysterious stranger. And with that, that's where the show really twists itself. The show starts to reveal there's a much larger plot to follow in the show. And if I could talk about that more, I think that would probably sell you on it being more than just a very standard superhero show. I've seen the first three episodes. They drop all at once this weekend on Amazon Prime Video. And there's not much I can say about the show and some of the plot developments, but the show oozes with pathos. It's an absolute must-watch, even if that's against your better judgment. Huge rap for Invincible there. I knew very little of it. Boy, that voice cast is something to write home about as well. Uh, where can we see that one? That was on Amazon Prime, was it, did you say? Yes. In the same way that I've got the boys, they're really playing around in this subversive superhero space. Wonderful. And people will look at it for a few minutes going, this is a very traditional-looking cartoon show. Stick with it for a few minutes. I think you'll fall into the tone of it. It really is doing something quite different. It is called Invincible, available to watch this weekend on Amazon Prime. Evgeny Ruman is the co-writer and director of Golden Voices. The movie draws upon his parents' experience as it tells the story of Victor and Raya Frankel, the Russian Jews who find relocating to Israel as they enter mature age to be a challenging experience. The movie is certainly very funny and is a very moving journey. Now, Golden Voices, it is currently playing in Australian cinemas now. We had a chat with Evgeny Ruman, but here's the problem. Initially, we'd planned to place this right here where you're listening to me on the podcast. 
Unfortunately, the technology wasn't really quite there for it. The microphone, the Zoom call, it just sounded a little bit too muddled. And the reality is, this is a podcast you're listening to. You're probably listening to this while you're commuting on public transport. You might be out walking the dog. You could be at the gym. There's all sorts of reasons why sound quality is it's paramount to make sure that it's really important on a podcast. Because if you don't have that right, it just makes for a really frustrating experience. And we pushed out the podcast and included the audio in there, hoping to scrape by. But look, I took a walk with the dog and I listened to it. It's not quite there. So what we've done is we've yanked out that interview. And so you'll stop hearing me talk in just a second. But if you particularly want to hear the chat that we had with Evgeny, we are going to make it available on the screen watching Facebook page. We're going to make it available on Simon Foster's uh, Screen Space website. So if you want to listen to it, it'll be available in those two places there. And we encourage you to check it out because it's a very good movie. He's a really engaging, interesting man. And I think people will find value in that interview. Unfortunately, it just didn't quite work for this podcast. So that's available there. Do check it out. And just a reminder, Golden Voices, it is playing in Australian cinemas right now. Simon Foster, we like to wind out the show every week with a look at the week ahead. We've got a couple of new streaming programs that are worth a look. On Stan, you've got Between Black and Blue, which is the true story of Mike Borelli and Bob Davis, who were two New York detectives convicted of the 1975 murder of a Denver businessman named Hal Levine. Yeah, this should be a good one. Very high production values on Between Black and Blue. Uh, March 26th. Uh, the Mighty Ducks Game Changers. This is a reboot of the uh, great Disney franchise, the Mighty Ducks franchise. Um, this one features a young man, uh, Evan Murrow. He's cut from the Ducks, and he and his mum set out to build their own team of misfits to challenge the cutthroat win-at-all-cost culture of youth sports today. Before you ask, yes, Emilio Estevez is back uh, in the role that made him kind of famous um, all those years ago. Good to see the Mighty Ducks back on screen. Yeah, and some of the original Mighty Ducks will be back in a very dedicated episode. But what's probably worth noting is that the actual female lead of the series is Lauren Graham from the Gilmore Girls. Wonderful. She's beautiful and great to see her on screen as well. March 27, uh, season 5 premiere of a show called My Hero Academia. Now, um, this is on a streaming service called Anime Lab. Um, it is a, uh, a streaming service which brings um, premiere anime uh, titles to Australia. Um, My Hero Academia has been their biggest hit. Uh, anime Lab has over 1.8 million paid subscribers. My Hero Academia tells the story of um, Izuki Midoriya, who lives in a universe where superpowers or quote-unquote quirks have become very commonplace. Once again, we're talking superheroes, but this is from a very different perspective. Um, huge cult following for My Hero Academia, and um, we're all very excited to see it uh, season five back on Anime Lab. That's um, That comes up Saturday night, March 27, in both the Australia and New Zealand. And on March 28, you've got Tina, which explores the extraordinary life of one of music's greatest icons. That's right, Tina Turner. Yeah. Uh, Premier is direct from the US on the 28th, which is Sunday at 11 a.m. And you can find that on Fox Hill and the on-demand service through Fox Hill as well. Couple of other movies hitting cinemas around the country as we speak. Uh, the long overdue, boy, this has been going on for about 18 months now, Peter Rabbit 2. Uh, we didn't rush out and see this one. I didn't like the first film. I know it was a big success with families. Um, in this one, Peter finds himself in a world where his mischief is appreciated rather than put upon by the uh, the people of his home farm. Um, but his family risks everything to come looking for him and Peter must figure out what kind of bunny he wants to be. 
there's no convincing anyone to see Peter Rabbit 2 who didn't see Peter Rabbit 1. It's more of the same. Um, it's in cinemas now for families heading into the Easter holiday period. Yeah, I'm not even sure I acknowledge that Peter Rabbit 1 was a thing. <laughs> it's a terrible film, but was a huge hit. I'm not, sure, I'm not the right market. Yeah, no, you're not. Uh, Mick Fleetwood and Friends, Before the Beginning, is a music doc that's playing in theatres. Uh, it's, a, it's a concert movie, right? It is a concert movie that, now I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan. They're my favourite group of all time. Rumours is the best album ever made. Um, in this one, they go right back to the start when a gentleman named Peter Green, back in the, the mid-60s, uh, wrote all their music and they came out of like a bluegrass type of background. Um, and this one gathers some of the biggest stars in the music world to play the music of Peter Green. And it's actually been rolling out through cinemas over the last couple of weeks and is heading into some of the bigger venues this weekend. Um, it's called Mick Fleetwood and Friends Before the Beginning. At the Newtown Dandy Cinemas, you've got the Czech and Slovak Film Festival playing. Uh, King Creole is playing at the Ritz Randwick, which is the 1958 Elvis film, which... I'm thinking about getting along to that, but also I know the reality of sitting in a theater watching an Elvis movie probably is going to regret on me a little bit, but if you're in a mood for that, definitely check that out. Where I wish I could be is in Melbourne at the Astor, oh, yeah. and they're playing The Untouchables, which, look, I've seen The Untouchables on the big screen maybe about three times in the last year, yeah. but even so, I'd happily do it again. The film that made and Ke- that's playing Monday night. The film that made Kevin Costner a star. Um, I saw it five times in a, on the original release on some of the biggest screens in Sydney, so I love The Untouchables. Yes, good, God bless the Astor Melbourne for bringing that uh, back to the screen. Brian De Palma's classic. Um, and in... At the- oh, so if you, if you can't, sorry, if you can't see The Untouchables on the big screen... It is on like the streaming services quite a bit, so I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix right now yeah. as well as a few uh, others. Can, so if you've never seen The Untouchables, give it a look because, man, that film just flies. It is a wonderful film. And at the Mercury Cinema in Adelaide, they've had a Bob Fosse season, um, which comes to an end on the 29th of March at 6.30pm with one of his really undervalued films, Star 80, was the last movie he played. He was actually going to the premiere of the film when he passed away. It stars Mariel Hemingway as the doomed playmate Dorothy Stratton and Eric Roberts as he as her insidious boyfriend. Um, it was a huge flop in its day, barely got released, but has found a lot of love um, in the interim. So uh, do get along to the Mercury Cinema in Adelaide on the 29th to see Star 80. Now, a couple of landmark anniversaries this oh, week. Boy. Simon, do you want to run through them? Yeah, look, some big names in the world of television premiered on this day, March 26. In 1969, Marcus Welby, MD, debuted on ABC TV as a TV movie. In 1971, Canon with William Conrad, ask your grandparents, kids, premieres on CBS TV. Young and the Restless in 1973 also premiered on CBS. And in 2005, Doctor Who returns to BBC TV after 16 years. That was with Christopher Eccleston as the ninth Doctor and the beautiful Billy Piper as Rose. Indeed, a couple of birthdays to note this week as well. Chips Rafferty, <sighs> uh, people would know from Desert Rats, right? Yeah, he was around one of the great, one of the great early Aussie acting stars of his generation. Uh, Martin Short from maybe some of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> Notably Three Amigos. Three Amigos and obviously SCTV period as well. I had to put in there in 1976, Amy Smart, the beautiful Amy Smart from American Pie and most recently as Stargirl's mum, uh, she was born. Sorry, did the great film Road Trip mean nothing to you? Uh, there's 1985 with the birth of Kira Knightley. <laughs> Who people would know from other movies. From other movies. Uh, Love Actually. Oh, I just broke my rule of never mentioning that show, that movie on this show, but there we go. And, of course, Bend It Like Beckham made her a star. Are we at the end of another screen watching? We are, which is probably the right place for me to make a revelation. 
I've never seen a film Love Actually. Ah, well, you're one of the lucky ones. It is a film that I despise with every fibre of my existence. And um, I'm keen to take anyone on who wants to engage with me via our social medias or hell, just walk up to me in the street and I'll take you on. Um, Love Actually, hashtag burn Love Actually. Am I picturing some fisticuffs taking place on the street? (laughs) Oh, yes. There'll be no love, actually. Finally, a reason to launch a YouTube channel for the screen watching. (laughs) Let's sign off. Uh, Folks, thank you very much for listening to screen watching. My name has been Dan Barrett and will continue to be. You can sign up for my free newsletter, Always Be Watching, at alwaysbewatching.com. Every day you receive the big stuff.